Modern. 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 We're prepping for a voyage. Modern. The force of an old-fashioned equals whiskey mass times bitters acceleration. Why don't you make that a double? Modern Bar Cart. Hey there, listener. Eric here. I bet you took one look at the title of this episode and almost pulled a muscle rolling your eyes. Yep, another coronavirus-themed podcast, and believe me, we went back and forth about this big time because I'm starting to get sick of hearing about it too. The reason why I think it's really important that we run this show is because this pandemic is having a very real, very visceral impact on the spirits and cocktail world and all the people who work or play within it. We're going to give the coronavirus its time in this episode, walking you through some of the local ramifications of this virus. But then I'm also going to zoom out and try to give you a few glimpses of what drinking in a time of plague looked like at other points in history. And we're going to round this episode out with some fun cocktail-related ideas and challenges that might help you weather the social distancing situation a bit more enjoyably. There's some serious and important stuff here, for sure, but it's not going to all be doom and gloom. So if you're listening now, don't bail just because COVID-19 has been beaten to death on the rest of your news feeds and platforms, because if you do bail, you won't learn about plague doctors, opium snake juice, or vinegar-making grave robbers. And that would be a real shame. Oh, and P.S., we're not doctors, and none of the content in this episode should be taken as medical advice. Now, on to the show. What's shaking, cocktail fans? Welcome to episode 140 of the Modern Bar Cart Podcast. I'm your host, Modern Bar Cart CEO, Eric Koslick. Thanks for tuning in for this little oddity of an episode where, for once, we've decided to be pretty timely and topical. Obviously, there's a big, scary elephant in the room, and that is the COVID-19 coronavirus that's been spreading panic across the world, and in particular, across the entire spirits and cocktail landscape. To be completely honest, we here at Modern Bar Cart have also been affected by the emergency orders that have been put in place here in D.C. and also in many other states. Most of our partners in the distilling world are making hand sanitizer and have closed their tasting rooms. Our bar and restaurant clients are largely shuttered or doing takeout, and I've had a lot of interview cancellations because guests are obviously dealing with the logistical and financial fallout of what has happened over the past couple weeks. Times are definitely uncertain, and they're tough, but despite this industry-wide shakeup, we're still going to be here making great spirits and cocktail content for you to enjoy on a weekly basis as you look to take your mind off this shitstorm that is every headline and newsfeed at the moment. To that end, I've got a couple gifts for you right off the bat. The first being a sweet podcast exclusive discount code for our e-commerce store over at modernbarcart.com where you can stock up on mixers and swag to help get you through the quarantine. If you enter the coupon code PLAGUE, that's P-L-A-G-U-E at checkout, you'll receive 20% off your entire order from our e-commerce store through the end of April. We're not doctors, but we've certainly got some cures for boredom, so head on over and place your order today. The second little gift I've got comes in the form of my new co-host in training. His name is Blaze, and he's a nine-week-old Australian cattle dog who chases squirrels in his sleep and enjoys running around like a little dingo when he's awake. 
If you want to see pictures of him, and he's a very handsome boy, I'll post one or two on the show notes page. And you can also follow me on Instagram at Quixologist. That's Q-U-I-X-ologist if you want a front row seat to all the cuteness. Plus, if you hear barking in the background during any of our future episodes, just know that's my new co-host throwing in his two cents. So, with those little snippets out of the way, let's kick off this plague-ridden episode by giving you a chance, as always, to make yourself a drink. This episode's featured cocktail is, fittingly, the penicillin. This cocktail narrowly fits into the category of what many folks call modern classic cocktails, which is a great topic for a Bar Cart Foundations episode, so we'll hopefully return to those in greater depth down the road. But basically... Modern classic cocktails are post-prohibition drinks that have become popular enough to appear on a ton of different cocktail menus around the world right next to true prohibition era and pre-prohibition drinks. The penicillin was invented in the early 2000s by New York bartender Sam Ross, famous for his work at the establishments Milk and Honey, Little Branch, Pegu Club, and Attaboy. To make it, you'll need two ounces of blended scotch whiskey, three quarters of an ounce of fresh lemon juice, three quarters of an ounce of honey syrup, a quarter ounce of Smoky Isla single malt scotch. I like Laphroaig 10 or Ardbeg 10 in this application. And then two to three quarter size slices of fresh ginger. In a cocktail shaker, muddle your ginger, then add ice and all your liquid ingredients except for the Isla scotch. Shake until it's well chilled and diluted, then double strain into a rocks glass with ice. Float that quarter ounce of smoky scotch right on top and garnish optionally with a couple pieces of candied ginger on a cocktail pick. If you break down this drink, it's just a whiskey sour. That's all. It's got that two ounce to three quarter ounce to three quarter ounce ratio of booze to sweet to sour. But what makes the penicillin a really special cocktail is the way it extends what a whiskey sour can be, right? It gives you two looks at the whiskey with the blended scotch being relatively mellow and the Isla float being super smoky and possibly briny or rubbery or iodine-like. And then, of course, the ginger adds spice and vigor to the equation. Together, these two additions to the classic formula act like bitters without actually being bitters. They add depth to the drink and offer interesting complements and counterpoints to the other more standard ingredients. Want to know how to invent a modern classic cocktail? I can't think of a better example to follow than the penicillin. As long as you can get your hands on some fresh ginger, it's certainly a cure for what ails you. So, now that you've got a drink in hand, let's commence this episode detailing the strange, fractured experience that is drinking in a time of plague. First off, let's review what's going on here in Washington, D.C., my hometown, which we can largely generalize to what's going on bi-coastally and in many major cities here in the U.S. This episode should drop sometime during the last week of March here in 2020, and so far the timeline of this virus and its impact on my local booze world has been as follows. On Wednesday, March 11th, D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser declared a state of emergency in response to the COVID-19 coronavirus. And so, you know, we're just going to use those two words interchangeably from here on out. 
Four days later, she followed that state of emergency with a set of heavy restrictions on bars and restaurants that included completely eliminating bar seating and placing capacity restrictions and spacing constraints on table seating for all DC food and drink venues, including nightclubs. As you can imagine, this order generated both praise and criticism. Proponents launched the hashtag ShutUsDown, which circulated on social media a lot in the few days following Bowser's restrictions. This hashtag was accompanied by a fairly lengthy description of why these bars and restaurants desired to be closed, which mostly boiled down to the fact that open bars and restaurants would fly in the face of the social distancing directive that slows the spread of the virus. A number of these venues announced that they would be voluntarily offering carryout instead of dine-in fare as a way to still serve their customers while also being socially responsible. Critics of Bowser's new rules included one notable restaurant group that refused to follow the order because it did not create a fair playing field, in their opinion, for small businesses. The owner has since published a retraction and an apology. Wherever you stand on the closed versus open issue, it's worth noting that both the proponents and critics of Bowser's orders were reacting in large part to the need to pay their people. An open establishment can generate enough cash flow to pay its staff, right, by being open, and on the other hand, a closed establishment can more easily lay off workers than an open one, which can allow them to more quickly file for unemployment. So, you know, there's checks and balances on both sides of the equation here. On Monday, March 16th, Bowser announced a complete shutdown of all bars, restaurants, and nightclubs. She also loosened some restrictions around filing for unemployment so that the displaced workers would be able to make ends meet until the panic is over. Bars and restaurants are, however, allowed to sell takeout food, beverages, and cocktails, usually of the batch and bottled variety for ease of distribution. One interesting and kind of sad consequence of all this that's going on is that Jack Rose, a DC whiskey bar that's housed the largest whiskey library on this side of the Mississippi, basically conducted a fire sale on their collection to help weather the storm. I saw a ton of stuff about this on social media, and it was truly bittersweet. On the one hand, it's great to help businesses like this by purchasing what they have to offer, but on the other hand, it's kind of sad to see a truly beautiful collection sold off solely out of need. Now, at the current date, there's still a lot of uncertainty in the service industry about what these new rules and unemployment relaxations mean and how precisely to take advantage of them. I, for example, am a member of several local bartender and restaurant Facebook groups, and there have been a lot of ongoing discussions and scheduled workshops designed to provide more clarity and speed of access to money. But it's safe to say that everyone is still slightly to moderately disgruntled by the whole situation, as they should be. If you're local here to the Mid-Atlantic, I'm going to include in our show notes page over at modernbarcart.com forward slash podcast a link to a podcast called The Shift Drink Podcast here in D.C. They recently published an episode that was very heavily dedicated to exploring all that's been going on. So if you are local and you do have a stake, head over to the show notes page and you can listen more there. Uh, the Shift Drink Podcast is one of my regular podcasting dietary editions, so feel free to head on over and give them some love as well. In Maryland, the situation is much the same. Bars and restaurants are closed. 
But so far, as of March 23rd, there have been no orders from Virginia Governor Ralph Northam that have forced service establishments to shut their doors. The result is that folks who have decided to err on the side of caution are casting a critical eye upon those who have remained open for financial reasons, and vice versa, creating a culture of distrust within the industry that feels fittingly ominous as the coronavirus continues to pervade our social consciousness. But there are a few bright lights to be found. I can count more than a dozen distilleries here in the Mid-Atlantic that have risen to the challenge of making hand sanitizer to support both the general public and vital healthcare workers and first responders. Cotton and Reed Distillery here in D.C. is handing out free hand sanitizer with bottle purchases, and other operations that are too numerous to list here are pushing sanitizer out in bulk to service hospitals and other healthcare facilities. That brings us largely up to speed on the changes this pandemic has triggered in the spirits and cocktail landscape in my neck of the woods. Most of it's not good, but as you can see, there are a lot of folks working very hard to fight the good fight so that things can get back to normal as soon as possible. My main ask to you, dear listener, is to keep in mind that all bars and restaurants and most small distilling operations are heavily dependent on cash flow to keep their lights on and pay their staff. So please, if you have a stake in how the industry is able to recover and if you have the money to be able to contribute, think about doing one or all of the following. You could purchase gift cards from your favorite establishments to be used at a later date, get takeout from bars or restaurants that are currently offering that service, or buy local spirits from your liquor store so that distributors are forced to place new orders from distillers in your area. Otherwise, your money's just going to go to a large international conglomerate that's going to be able to weather this storm just fine. So pull out your phone and start looking at how you can become a part of the solution instead of remaining a bystander while this great industry struggles to figure out what comes next. Now that we've covered most of the pressing updates and news briefing items, let's go ahead and zoom out to investigate how other people in bygone times have used spirits and mixology to cope in times of plague. We'll begin with a legend, albeit of questionable provenance. The year is 1347. The setting, Marseille, a primary port city in the south of France, flanked by the rich farm country of Provence to the north and the Mediterranean Sea to the south. Due to exposure with afflicted Italian merchants, the Black Plague has ravaged the city, leaving at least half the populace dead or deathly ill. You are a humble laborer, charged with processing and packaging sweet and savory herbs from Provence and receiving exotic spices from the Silk Road. The sights Sounds and smells from the Genoese ships creaking into port have been grim indeed. Literal skeleton crews with boils, ulcers, and affectations so gruesome that many vessels have to be turned back and burned at sea with their living and dead still aboard. The panic in the city is total, and seemingly every household is engaged in the task of tending the sick or burying and mourning their dead. The bishop has proclaimed the illness a scourge from God sent to punish sinners. Most who come in contact with the victims of this plague seem quickly to succumb to the disease. But you and three of your fellow herb packers from the docks seem to have some sort of luck or protection against the invisible evil. You've slept in homes where the sickness has entered, 
and even helped each other bury relatives and loved ones who were taken, but not a boil has appeared on your or your companion's skin. As days turn to weeks, things only get worse. Food becomes scarce. News from the outlying lands is bleak. One day, you and your charmed compatriots are watching from a doorway as the funeral procession for a prominent priest limps morbidly by. If this truly is a plague sent from God, then why are the holiest among you also being struck down? Alas, it can only be the work of a power far more evil than even His grace can conquer. And if that is the case, then there is no hope of divine redemption. Just this living hellscape filled with empty homes and fresh graves, both waiting to be looted. You begin by working your way each night through the abandoned homes of friends and neighbors, combing through and divvying up the trinkets and belongings they left as they fled or perished. Then, knowing that many of the wealthier deceased are being buried with adornments far richer than anything you could hope to scrounge from a peasant's home, you resolve to keep track of the most prominent deaths and take up spades while their graves are still fresh. It's on one fateful miasmatic night, the moon a thin sliver veiled by clouds, the air thick with death and fresh earth, that the constable and his men discover you and your band knee-deep in the grave of a perfectly forgettable mid-grade merchant. In times like these, justice is delivered swiftly. You know you need to act fast if your life is to be spared, and so you quickly propose to the constable that if the four of you reveal your secret for warding off the plague, he must spare your lives. The constable, being a man of good wits, sees no alternative but to agree, and so lets you live in exchange for your secret. End scene. What you just heard was a highly stylized and embellished, by me, version of a story that's probably already mostly false. The legend of Four Thieves Vinegar, or en français, Vinaigre de Quatre Voleurs. This is essentially a vinegar infused with herbs and spices that is rumored to have originated in Marseille during one of several plagues that swept the region during the late Middle Ages and Renaissance. Clearly, the resolution of this story is that these dock workers turned thieves took the botanical profile of the herbs and spices they were covered with daily as a consequence of their occupation and turned them into a vinegar infusion that may or may not have helped the user to avoid contracting the plague. More realistically, if this story has any truth to it, the herbs probably repelled the fleas that transmitted said plague, which were carried from port to port on rats. According to Wikipedia, and I'll be the first to admit that this is not a very reliable article, the following recipe for Four Thieves Vinegar was on display at a museum in Paris in the 1930s and was claimed to be an original copy of the recipe that was posted on the walls of Marseille during an outbreak of plague. It reads as follows, quote, Take three pints of strong white wine vinegar, add a handful each of wormwood, meadowsweet, wild marjoram, and sage, 50 cloves, 2 ounces of campanula roots, 2 ounces of angelic, which we call today angelica, rosemary, and whorehound, and 3 large measures of camphor. Place the mixture in a container for 15 days, strain and express, then bottle. Use by rubbing it on the hands, ears, and temples from time to time when approaching a plague victim. End quote. During the late Middle Ages, the medical canon operated based on the humoral view of the human body. Essentially, you've got these four humors, 
blood, yellow bile, black bile, and phlegm. And physicians at the time would attempt to diagnose your malady based on an imbalance between these humors. Then, on the remedy front, they would often create various infusions, tinctures, or poultices designed to hopefully correct the imbalance in question. This is how the legend of the Four Thieves Vinegar connects us back to the spirits world. Based on what we know from our experiences with shrubs and switchels, vinegar is an effective extracting agent, definitely good enough to get the flavors and oils from certain herbs and spices into a liquid medium, but perhaps not as effective as actual spirits at pulling out and then, here's the important part, preserving these volatile flavor and aroma compounds. Alcohol and medicine also have a pretty fortuitous intersection at the end of the Middle Ages with the invention of distillation by the Arabs in the 9th century, which then spread to Europe and China with additional advances like fractional distillation coming by the 13th century. Now, think about that word spirit for a second. How did this word come to be associated with distilled alcohol? The way those medieval Islamic alchemists thought of it really didn't have much to do with our contemporary sense of the word. Because Islam is a dry religion, the Arab scientists who conducted some of these first forays into distillation weren't really interested so much in drinking as they were interested in what chemical compounds the condensed vapor of their distillates contained. Right? These vapors were the literal spirits of whatever materials were used to distill them. And so in typical alchemical fashion, these scholars went about looking to refine substances by taking their spirits and blending them into something more perfect or desirable than the sum of its raw parts. You could also make an argument that the Four Thieves vinegar that came about a few centuries later borrowed from this idea by taking these properties of numerous elements and then combining them in the correct ratios to produce something verging on magical at least in that time and place. Another etymological sense of the word spirit is the Latin root word spirare, meaning breath or the breathing of air, especially as that function is related to life and what would centuries later come to be called homeostasis, the biological circumstances necessary to continue the process of living. This is where we get associations with spirits and the ubiquitous water of life moniker. From the Celtic whiskey beata to the French eau de vie to the Portuguese aguardiente, these traditions all tie distilled spirits to the ability to draw breath on this earth. And I think the connection there might be a bit stronger than some people are willing to give credit for in today's world of antibiotics and modern medicine. This also ties us back to the world of organized religion in that breathing and breath is associated in Christianity with the Holy Spirit. And so you can see how all these forces, from organized religion to alchemy to distillation to botany to humoral medicine, all converge to create a rich sense of the word spirit. And not just that, but a definition that is diametrically opposed to death, pestilence, and plague. Let's take a quick look at a couple of distillates and infusions that became important medical treatments during the late Middle Ages, starting with a little dram called aqua mirabilis, or miracle water. This is one of two recipes that really piqued my interest in a document called the London Distiller, which was published in the mid-1600s, and which I came across secondhand through a contemporary distillation experiment that I'll mention in just a minute here. 
This is the recipe for aqua mirabilis, and fair warning, it probably contains a lot of herbs and flowers you may have never heard of. Quote, Take melilot, cardamom, cubebs, galangal, cloves, ginger, mace, nutmegs, of each a dram. The juice of celandine, half a pint. Mingle all these together. Bruise to a powder with the juice and a pint of aquavita and three pints of white wine. Put them together into a glass still. Let it stand all night and in the morning distill it with a very gentle fire. It is excellent against the palsy and very restorative. In the summer, one spoonful may be taken in a week, fasting. And in the winter, two spoonfuls. End quote. Now, there are some crazy things that this little recipe reveals about the sophistication of distilling knowledge, or, at the very least, distilling instincts that were present during the Middle Ages. Offhand, I kind of got curious about what kind of ABV we'd be looking at with that pint of aquavita, three pints of white wine, and that half pint of celandine juice. So I ran some speculative numbers, texted a couple friends to run it by them, and it turns out that what we're looking at is a compound somewhere in the neighborhood of 20% ABV, which is what many modern distillers end up with as a low wine after conducting what's called a stripping run. Following that initial stripping run, they're then going to perform a second distillation to get what ends up being pretty close to their finished product. But keep in mind, aqua mirabilis would not have been made using even a regular pot still. This, as the recipe stipulates, would be made using a glass still probably in an alembic-style shape, which has no condenser, just an arm to catch the distilled vapors. This is about the least efficient form of distillation out there, and so it's really cool to me that this recipe is set up for success at the get-go by mimicking the low wines produced by a more sophisticated method of distillation, probably before that method of distillation was even invented. It blows my mind. So, so cool. Other neat stuff about this recipe. The author recommends muddling the spices with the celandine juice and then letting it steep in the 20% ABV solution with the wine and the aquavita overnight, which is the same method used to make many modern liqueurs, cordials, and amari. Also, there's a dosage prescription, right? One spoonful in the summer and two in the winter taken fasting, which simply means on an empty stomach. Why that is? I couldn't tell you, but I assume that someone at some point had their reasons. Now, another more complex infused spirit that comes out of the Middle Ages is a thing affectionately referred to as plague water, which was actually created as a treatment for the plague rather than just a general remedy like aqua mirabilis. The recipe for plague water is a bit too long to list here, but it has a couple interesting departures from the process I just described. First, it's actually sweetened, moving it one step closer to modern liqueurs and cordials. And second, it contains a couple ingredients that are themselves compounds made of many other ingredients. These include Venice treacle and mithridate, which contain questionable ingredients like viper flesh and opium tears, respectively. According to the London Distiller, the instructions for administering plague water are to, quote, let the party infected take of this water one ounce mingled with warm posit drink or any proper water in that case, and be kept very warm and sweat well thereon, end quote. 
Both Aquamirabilis and Plague Water were recreated recently by a contemporary distilling company called Tattersall, based out of Minneapolis. And of course, to be compliant with modern safety regulations, Tattersall distilling had to omit things like viper flesh, opium, and ambergris, which is the hardened bile of a sperm whale. I can't locate any of these products available on the market today, unfortunately, because it appears to have been a pretty small batch and local collaboration with the University of Minnesota and the Minneapolis Institute of Art. But the sheer fact that we've got distillers in the here and now breathing new life into recipes that were all but banished to the dark ages is incredibly exciting to me. It means we're not done learning, and I'm super excited to see what further excavation of historical distilling records will yield in the years to come. Before we return to our own coronavirus plague, I do want to offer up just one more little botanical oddity from the late Middle Ages for your consideration, and that is the case of the plague doctor. Many of you will be familiar with this creepy-looking costume with an overcoat, a cane, and a beaked mask. It's remained popular at Halloween gatherings and masquerades through the years, but you might be surprised to know a few pointed details about this ominous occupation and the impact it's had on the world. First and most importantly, the big old beak on the mask wasn't just there to wig people out. In many cases, it was filled with sweet-smelling herbs and spices like juniper, rose, mint, camphor, and cloves to help the wearer literally mask the smell of decay in putrid flesh, which was very much a daily reality in times of plague. And, if we learned anything from our encounter with the Four Thieves vinegar, it's that many botanicals have legitimate antimicrobial properties that can help ward off plague vectors like fleas. Certain plants actually evolved these properties as defense mechanisms against attack from insects, so it makes sense why the fleas might have responded with aversion to these strong-smelling herbs and spices. Another thing to note is that later versions of the Plague Doctor mask integrated glass eye protection, which is a really smart thing to do since the plague could be transmitted through bodily fluids and many plague victims had this pesky little habit of coughing up blood and mucus. The cane, carried by most Plague Doctors, also helped keep them at arm's length from the people they were hired to inspect, which is, in light of today's predicament, an OG example of social distancing. Which brings us to the one thing that plague doctors share in common with everyday folks like you and me scrolling our news feeds reading about COVID-19. We're not doctors. And neither were they, by and large. In fact, most plague doctors didn't have their own medical practices. They were individuals, freelancers, in effect, hired by towns or cities where the plague had become a major problem and potentially even wiped out the doctors that were there before. Some of these plague doctor contractors, did treat patients, but their more official role was to gather demographic data about who was affected and or dying. Because of this, in many places they were referred to as empirics. And this is very important because for more than a millennium leading up to the outbreak of plague in Europe, most medical practitioners were members of the religious class. And because of the interdependence between sovereign monarchs and the church, the best medical treatment would always and only be reserved for wealthy landowners. But because of their contracts with the municipality they were hired to serve, plague doctors were actually able to help everyone, regardless of their class or social status. And you know what? When you get thrown into the belly of the beast like plague doctors did, you get a lot more reps. 
you get a lot more data points than those ivory tower physicians who only treated a small percentage of the population. More data points make it easier to identify trends in what works and what doesn't when treating an illness, even when significant trial and error are involved. And so I'm personally not surprised that plague doctors were contemporary with Leonardo da Vinci's Vitruvian Man and the anatomical dissection theaters of the Renaissance that led to major breakthroughs in the medical field. These so-called empirics were literal heralds of empirical science and the scientific method, and though they carried the herbs and spices of a fearful and superstitious world in their masks, their methods and fearlessness created space for science to flower. Taken together, the case studies of aquamirabilis, plague water, and of course plague doctors show the medical field in the late Middle Ages bending away from the humoral view of illness and toward one that valued complex chemical formulations and a more sophisticated understanding of the body. The way I see it, the advent of distillation and the subsequent ravages and responses to plague in Europe were sort of a proto-awakening that paved the way for the Renaissance and then the ages of enlightenment and revolution that would ultimately shape our modern world. Was this period of time sexy? No, it was ugly and it was brutal. But as a result of confronting an invisible enemy and striving to overcome it, the seeds for many important paradigm shifts were sowed. This is why I believe that spirits and cocktails in a time of plague have their role in the here and now. Yes, of course, we know much more about our invisible enemy than four legendary thieves covered in herb dust. But if there's one thing that a pandemic forces you to do, it's to really reassess your basics. Food, water, and security. And in this way, you and I are very similar to the peasants huddled around fires hearing stories of stinking corpses and ruined villages. We know we're not safe. And consequently, we're forced to dedicate a ton of mental resources to merely surviving, rather than attempting to flourish. It's a little sobering to think of ourselves as sharing some sort of emotional DNA with those wretched victims of the Black Plague. Part of you thinks, we're better than that now, we can weather this, we got it. But then there's another part of you that sees how little our institutions have changed from those days when the wealthy elite held absolute sway over the masses. Just like live news coverage of the Vietnam War disillusioned many Americans from supporting the initiative to send our servicemen overseas for a war without end and without virtue, I think we're seeing an echo of that on our social media feeds today, except the enemy is not a camouflaged guerrilla army on the other side of the world, it's a virus that could literally be hiding in plain sight on any person, object, surface, or atmosphere you encounter. That's why I'd like to round out our historical investigation into plagues and their effects on what we drink with one of the oldest accounts of mass illness passed down to us by Lucretius, the Roman poet responsible for translating and interpreting the work of Epicurus, one of the first thinkers to advocate for an atomistic view of the universe way back in the third century BCE. And if this name Epicurus sounds familiar, it's because we derive the contemporary adjective Epicurean from him. And an Epicurean is somebody who enjoys good food and good drink. In essence, the sensory pleasures of life. Lucretius's epic poem, Dererum Natura, 
The Nature of Things, includes an account of the Athenian plague of 430 BCE and, although there's widespread uncertainty among historians as to what precisely caused that plague, by all accounts it was bad. In his translation of Epicurus's text, Lucretius writes, quote, In these matters, what was saddest and most cause for gloom was that when someone saw the plague upon him, he would start thinking like a man under sentence of death and would lose heart and lay there listlessly, his mind sunk deep in morbid thought, and dwelling on his death, gave up his spirit on the spot. End quote. Almost 2,500 years after those words were penned, here we are in a similar predicament. But in those moments where it seems tempting to give up your spirit, I think it's important to remember that our distilled spirits and cocktails are, are here for us. It's important because they're derived from life-giving traditions and can be used carefully to soothe and comfort us in times of great uncertainty. In fact, now is a great time for you to think about which spirits remind you most of the medicinal and empirical traditions that arose to combat plague and pestilence, and perhaps find a way to share a restorative drink with a friend via phone or video chat. Know that you share the same anxieties as those victims of plague from many centuries past, but know also that we've built upon their struggles and are now stronger because of their ingenuity and bravery. That's the point of everything I've said so far, and so if you are still listening, you deserve to hear it more than anything. As we wrap up this episode, I'd like to end on a lighter note and give you a few ideas for how to deal with quarantining and social distancing while staying sane and, hey, maybe even catching a much-needed buzz. I mentioned earlier going back to basics, right? Food, water, sanitation. But for those of us who have walked into grocery stores with bare shelves recently, well, we've had to face up to a different cold reality. That is the bottom shelf of the pantry and the back of the freezer. Although it really stinks when you can't make your usual chicken or your Sunday roast, consider doing in these times a chopped style meal with a set of disparate ingredients that have been on your shelves or in your fridge for way too long. I recently made a venison goulash with orzo, which isn't exactly a common dinner in our family repertoire, but it was great because I was able to line up these weird kind of quirky ingredients on my counter and try to weave a through line between them, almost like a bartender does when someone asks them to make a custom drink. It keeps the skills sharp and gives our overburdened food supply chain a little time to recover from that insane rush on milk, eggs, and toilet paper. This is also a great time to cut down your liquor cabinet a bit. If you're anything like me, you've got bottles that are mostly finished, but not quite. You've been holding on to them for some reason. So think about what kinds of cocktails you can make with that half ounce of fancy scotch, that bottle of Baileys you forgot about, and maybe that bougie hot chocolate your sister sent you for Christmas. See what you come up with. I know that if you're a regular listener, you'll come up with something just great. The nice thing, of course, about thinning the number of bottles on your bar is that it lends itself to new growth, which leads me to my next recommendation. Keep an eye on which areas of the world have been most drastically affected by the coronavirus and consider stocking up intelligently and respectfully on bottles that you really love from those regions. 
Now, I'm probably going to regret saying this when the shelves get picked dry, but I'll give you a real-world example. Because Fernet Branca is primarily produced in Milan, which has been hit really hard by the pandemic, I decided to pick up two bottles of Fernet Branca in the past week. It's not something you go through super quickly in a cocktail context, so I don't consider this hoarding, but I do want to make sure that if something bad happens, I don't have to completely forget what Fernet tastes like. As we're able, I'll also try to schedule an interview or two with folks who can maybe shed some light on the more global impacts this virus is having on the booze industry, and maybe that will allow you to plan even more strategically. To be clear, I'm not advocating booze hoarding, and my previous directive to support local distillers and bars still stands, but come on guys, this is basic investing logic. If you see the writing on the wall, best to buy while you still have the opportunity. Another thing you can and should do is make plans to catch up with friends and family who are also socially isolated during this pandemic. I joined my squad for a virtual happy hour last Friday via video chat, and it was awesome to just kind of share a drink in solidarity while also making sure the people I really care about are holding up okay during these difficult times. If you want a fun party game to play during your virtual happy hour, message everybody ahead of time and see who can come up with the best custom toast, maybe pertaining to coronavirus or hopefully a completely different theme of your choosing. Toasts are a great way to kind of get silly, but also to, you know, think about what's important and to to really celebrate and honor that when you're with friends. Finally, got to be a little selfish here and recommend that tepid days quarantined in your home are a great time to pull out your laptop and leave a sparkling podcast review for us on Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, or wherever you like to leave podcast reviews. Now, I'm sure it would be completely unethical to offer compensation for reviews, so I definitely won't do that. No, no, no. But if you do happen to leave us a review and maybe you reach out by emailing, I don't know, podcast at modernbarcart.com to verify that it was you, you you just never know what's going to happen. You might find yourself richly and unexpectedly gifted with something. (coughs) Free stuff. (coughs) Sorry, the old allergies are flaring up here. You know, it being springtime, pollen, et cetera, et cetera. That about does it for this truly bizarre and unpleasantly timely episode of the Modern Bar Cart podcast. I hope you keep in mind that a lot of local bars, restaurants, and distilleries are being really affected by this, and those businesses employ real, beautiful people who are just as anxious as you are about what the future holds, so please support them however you can. You can support us here at Modern Bar Cart by continuing to tune in and by sharing your love of spirits and cocktails with those who are also seeking a light in these dark times. Until next time, stay safe, stuff your beaks with herbs, and thanks for listening. Hey everybody, thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, there's two big things you can do for us here at Modern Bar Cart. One would be to tell your friends and family if you think they'd enjoy listening to us talk about cocktails. And if they don't download podcasts, they can always stream our episodes on their desktop directly from the show notes page at modernbarcart.com. The other thing you can do to help would be to head on over to iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts and leave us a review. Five stars are great, but we're more interested in your feedback. And the beauty is, the more reviews we have, the easier it will be for other folks out there to learn about our show. We're trying to start 
a cocktail revolution here. And by spreading the word, you're helping us fight the good fight. You can always reach us by emailing podcast at modernbarcart.com if you're looking for cocktail or bartending advice, or if you're a pro who would like to pull up a mic and be interviewed for all to hear. Also, definitely follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Modern Bar Cart for cocktail porn, recipes, and entertaining tips. And keep an eye out for new product releases and special offers, which are happening all the time. We love our listeners, and we really enjoy giving you exclusive discounts and sneak peeks at our latest and greatest cocktail projects. This episode may be over, but for you, the mixological fun and adventures are just beginning. So remember, folks, drink responsibly and experiment boldly. This episode is made possible with editing and production assistance by Samantha Reed. An epic viral shitstorm of pandemic proportions brought to you by a virus called COVID-19 and a little bit of historical research and synthesis by yours truly. This has been a Modern Bar Cart production, copyright 2020.